The rest of us are in here. You can open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. Now I'm going to tell on myself a little this morning. Um, if you go back 40 years of time, I would have been 14 years old. And uh, so you can add, add up real quick, see how old I am. Uh, but I would have been 14 years old. And, and when I was a teenager, I was, I was really into music. I loved music. I can't play, I can't sing, but I loved to listen to music. And as a teenager, uh, 40 years ago, I had saved, that was back in the days of component stereo systems, you know, so you'd buy each piece separately. And, and as, as a teenager 40 years ago, I had almost a $3,000 stereo system in my bedroom that I had worked for and earned all the money for and bought each piece myself. And I loved music. And, and back then, I liked a huge variety of music. Now, my parents were Southern Gospel folks, so I listened to a lot of Southern Gospel. I listened to country. Back in those days in Chicago, there was even a radio show on called Dr. Demento, which was all these crazy songs that they would, they would do on Saturday night, stuff like Weird Al Yankovic and all that kind of stuff. I, I listened to that. But I also listened to classical. I loved classical music as a teenager, which is odd because a lot of teenagers don't. I love Tchaikovsky and Rossini and all those things. But, but as a kid, one of the things that always amazed me was the Hallelujah Chorus from Handel's Messiah. I was always amazed as a, as a young person that there was a song that was so powerful and so moving that kings and queens would stand in honor when that song was sung in a choir. And so as a young person, now I'm dating myself again, that was back in the days of LP records, I bought Handel's Complete Messiah on record to listen to in my in my. Uh, bedroom, and uh, I enjoyed that. Well, we know Handel's Messiah, we know the music was done by Handel. Uh, what most of us don't know is that the text was compiled by a gentleman named Charles Jennings. Jennings. And uh, the text is actually, for Handel's Messiah, is actually taken from 81 different verses of Scripture. And that was one of the things I always loved about the Messiah, that it's a direct tie to Scripture. 81 different verses pulling from 14 different books of the Bible. Well, the workbook for the 1743, so now we know how old it is, it's very old, 1743, the Messiah was performed, and it had a workbook that went along with it that people could, could look at while the concert was being performed, and the word book was broken into three main sections of the Messiah. And as I began to think about what am I going to preach on this, this December, I realized I have three Sunday mornings to preach because I'm preaching this week. Adam's preaching next week, and then I have two more weeks. So I thought, wow, what better way to approach Christmas than to focus on the Messiah of Christmas? And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take those three sections, the basic heading of those sections, and then we're going to explore Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Part one of the book is the prophecy of, and realization of God's plan to redeem mankind by the coming of the Messiah. So today we want to talk about the coming of the Messiah. We want to talk about the fact that Jesus came to this earth. And to do that, we're going to look back in Bible history to the book of Isaiah. Now you've got to understand, and we've got to set the background tonight so we can really understand the impact of chapter 40. Because if you ignore chapters 1 to 39 of Isaiah, you miss the impact of chapter 40. So we've got to understand that chapters 1 to 39 of Isaiah 
contain a very strong tone of judgment. Isaiah is basically declaring judgment on the nation of Israel because of her sins. 39 chapters of judgment, warning about what is coming because of the sin of the nation. And for 39 chapters, that's what Isaiah did. As a matter of fact, chapter 39 specifically warned of the future conquest of Jerusalem by Babylon, something that was still in the future. But then you get to chapter 40. And there's a complete change in tone in the book of Isaiah. And join me now in chapter 40, verse 1. Notice what it says. Comfort ye. Comfort ye, my people, saith your God. 39 chapters of warning of impending judgment because of the sins of a nation, and then suddenly the prophet, through we understand the leading of the Holy Spirit, writes, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. What? Saith your God. Saith your God. We know that whenever something's repeated in Scripture, it's repeated for emphasis. The first two words of chapter 40 are repeated for emphasis. Comfort. Comfort. Now, Isaiah has not been a comforting book so far. Isaiah has been a book of judgment. But suddenly we have this comfort, comfort, and then we have this message, Ye my people, saith your God. Though God was dealing with a sinful people, a sinful nation, He is still their God. And He still loves them. Aren't you glad today <laughs> that when God deals with sinful people, me, you, aren't you glad when He deals with us, when He chastens us, when, 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 when he has to, to talk about judgment for us, when he does this, he loves me still. He loves me. It's just like a parent with a child. Listen, every good parent has to chasten their child at times. If you are not willing to chasten your child, I personally don't believe you really love your child. Because as a parent, you have a responsibility to train them and raise them up in the ways of the Lord. And so you, we have a responsibility, but while we are disciplining a sinful child, our love for that child does not end. It doesn't. No matter how bad the circumstance, no matter how bad what's gone on, I do not stop loving my child because I have to discipline them. Now, they may have broken my heart. What I'm having to deal with may have hurt, but I don't stop loving them. And that's the picture we get here in Isaiah chapter 40. All this word of judgment, all this message of judgment, and then suddenly it's, Ye my people, saith your God. And then he comes to verse 2. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem. The words literally mean speak to the heart. Speak to the heart and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double 
for all her sins. So now we get the message. The, the message is, is, is comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God, speak ye to Jerusalem. Here's the message from God. And Isaiah lays it out. Here's the message from God. There's three points to what Isaiah says. And here are the three points to the message. Your warfare is accomplished. Now, how could Isaiah say that? Because chapter 39, he just warned them that Babylon was going to overtake them. Well, he could say that because if God be for us, as Romans chapter 8, verse 37 says, who can be against us? Even though Israel was going to be judged because of her sins, they were going to come out the other side. Why? Because God was for the nation of Israel. And so this is written as though it has already happened, even though judgment was still coming. The war was still looming. But ultimately, ultimately, God's people would be what? Comforted. See, folks, it's the same for you and I today. Listen, we, we've had lots of discussions. I hear lots of discussions before church, after church, about the state of our nation. And, and, and we would be absolutely with our head in the sand if we did not recognize that, that we, we are in a place in our nation where, where it just seems like for, in so many ways our nation has turned its back on the Lord. Our nation is, is blackened by sin. And, 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 and we may often think, and, and I'll be honest, sometimes I feel this way too, I feel like, when is good going to win? <laughs> because it seems like good is getting trampled on every side so often. And, and, and we definitely live in a time where right is called wrong and wrong is called right, as the Scripture talks about. And so sometimes, I, you know, I catch myself fretting about those things. And I'm sure I'm not the only person in this room if we're all honest with ourselves. But, folks, what we have to understand is that ultimately God will be victorious. This is a season, a season where, where Satan is allowed to, to work in this world because of sin, but ultimately, and it may not even be in my lifetime, things that are wrong will be made right. And so, when Isaiah says, comfort ye, comfort ye, I can take comfort in that, folks. It may not, I may not see it in my lifetime. But ultimately, it's all going to work out great because there's going to come a day where I am going to spend eternity with my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and it's all going to be worked out. You know, in talking with my mom this week, my mom said, you know, she's ready to go. Why? Because she knows where she's going. She knows there won't be any suffering. She's not going to have problems breathing in heaven. She told, she told Joyce and I the other day, it was probably the hardest thing I heard, but she, Joyce and I, have had, we've had five miscarriages in our marriage, and she told us, she said, you know, it's funny. She said, I'm going to see some of your children before you do. <laughs> and I, I thought there's a lot of truth to that. It was hard to hear, but there's a lot of truth to that. Why? Because she knows where she's going. And she will no longer be seven years in a bed. She'll be walking the streets of gold. <laughs> And, uh, and so, you know, folks, we can take comfort in these things. And that's the message here. Your warfare is accomplished. First John, 1 John chapter 4, 
1 John chapter 4 and verse 4 says, Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You know, one thing, folks, we always got to remind ourselves is our God is bigger than Satan is. He is. Our God is bigger than Satan's minions. Our God is bigger than anything that is awful in this world. Our God is bigger than it. And so we can be comforted. And so the threefold message here that God has for the nation of Israel, number one is your warfare is accomplished. And then notice number two, praise the Lord, your iniquity is pardoned. Your iniquity is pardoned. What a blessed thought, folks. We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My iniquity is pardoned. 39 chapters of Isaiah has dealt with God dealing with the sins of the, nat- of the nation. They were well aware of what their sins were because Isaiah has been spelling them out for 39 chapters. They knew what their sins were, but now they know that their sins have been pardoned. Why? Because the Messiah was coming to redeem mankind. There's a newer song out. I know a southern gospel group sings it, I think. It's, it's called I Stand Redeemed. It says, when I think of all my faults and my failures, when I consider all the times I let God down, I am humbled at the grace He has extended. I'm amazed at the mercy I have found. I could never earn His love on my own. Yet every time I come before his throne, I stand redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. I stand redeemed before the great I Am. When he looks at me, he sees the nail-scarred hands that bought my liberty. I stand redeemed. What a blessed thought, folks, that not only is there coming a point that the warfare, the battle is done, But there also is this point here where my iniquity, my sin has been pardoned by God Himself through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The word pardoned comes from a root word that the root means to be pleased with. In other words, Judah's iniquity was now satisfied before God because He had dealt with them and dealt with their sin. What a beautiful picture. So their warfare is accomplished, that's part of the message. Their iniquity is pardoned, that's part of the message. And then it says this, it says, For she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now that doesn't mean that God punished her twice for her sins, okay? That's not the God that we serve. It means that they received full punishment for her sins. In other words, God has judged and has dealt with them, and what they will receive is what they deserve, and then it will be done. And isn't that how it's supposed to be, folks? When we deal with, when we deal with our own personal children, and we have, to, we have to deal with them 
over something that they have done, and we, and we mete out the discipline to them, whatever it be, a grounding, a spanking, or whatever it is that we do to discipline our children, when it's done, it should be what? It should be done. And that's what Isaiah here is telling the nation of Israel. God, God your, your warfare is over. Your sin has been pardoned. You've, you've, you've paid the penalty in what's been judged to you, and now it's done. It's over. What a beautiful thought. And these three thoughts, of course, are, are prophetic, yet God states them as knowing that they will all be fulfilled, if not before, during his millennial reign. And so God speaks in this verse, in verse 2, as if it is already accomplished. That's the message of comfort, folks. Then we get to a path of preparation. Because we said today we're looking at the realization of God's plan to redeem mankind. So if we're going back to Isaiah, where, where's the Messiah coming? Well, here it comes. He says in verse 3, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. Now, you may sit here and say, what in the world does all that mean? Well, we have to understand the time frame in which our scriptures were written. Before a king would come into an area, he would send servants, people that were under him, into that area to clear all the obstacles for his journey out of the way. In other words, they made the high places low, the low places high. They, they, they made the path, so to speak, easy for the king's arrival. That's what they were supposed to do. And so now Isaiah immediately goes into this thing of the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. This, this, this person that, <coughs> that is, is calling for the way of the Lord to be prepared, the way of the Lord to be smoothed out, the path for the Lord to be open so that he may come. And, and I don't know about you, but your mind should immediately be going back to our study in the book of John, where John the Baptist, this is exactly what he was saying. Go to John chapter 1. We just finished our study in the book of John, but in John chapter 1 we saw almost these exact words in verse 19. And this is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then, art thou Elias? And he saith, I am not. Art thou a pro that prophet? And he answered, No. Then said they unto him, Who art thou, that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou? And here's John's response. He said, I am the voice of of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah. John says, I'm the one. I'm the voice. I'm the voice crying in the wilderness. Make straight the path of the Lord. He's coming. The Messiah is coming. And it was John who, who, who told them that they needed to make the path straight. And we read in this passage in Isaiah about the mountains shall be made low, the valleys shall be exalted, the, the, the crooked things shall be made straight, and the rough places shall be made plain. What's he talking about? He's talking about making a path for the Lord's arrival, just like would be done for a king uh, 
in those days. And so with that word picture in mind about preparing the way for the Messiah to come, let's ask ourselves this question. What obstacles are there in my life that would prevent the coming of the Messiah? What do I have in my life that prevents him from working in me like he should? What things have I put into place? What valleys do I have? What mountains do I have? What crooked paths are in my life that prevent the Lord from accomplishing in my life what should be done if I'm a believer in Jesus Christ? Because I think all of us have those things. I think when we evaluate deep down into ourselves, we realize that there are things in our life that prevent us from living life the way God wants us to be living if we're just honest with ourselves, if we just take honest evaluation. And so we have here in Isaiah this beautiful picture, this, this word picture of the obstacles in the way that the king's servants go forward before him and clear out of the way. And then we go back, it says, Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and crooked shall be made straight, and the rough place is plain. And then it says this, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. He says, for the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Turn back over to John just for a second. You cannot, you cannot deal with anything about the coming of the, of, of the Messiah without landing back in the book of John. In John chapter 1, And verse 14, notice what it says. It says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And note what it says next. And we beheld His glory. Isaiah just said, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And John says, The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of Him and cried, saying, This was He of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for He was before me. And of His fullness have we all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. What does Isaiah say? Isaiah says, listen, we are going to behold the glory of the Lord. And then he says this. The voice said, crying. He said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all the... The goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. O Zion that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem that bringest good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. This is point number three. It's a message of declaration. Notice what he says in this passage. He says, number one, the word of our God shall stand 
forever. I love the song, folks, The Bible Stands, like a rock undaunted mid the raging storms of time. Its pages burn with the truths eternal. What a beautiful thought. The word of our God stands forever. But notice what it says. What are we to be doing? The word of God is going to stand forever. It's going to stand the test of time. And we know that is true, folks, because we are centuries later. And there have been nations that have tried to make the word of God extinct on this earth. And the only thing they have been successful in doing is making it spread to more of the world. Every attempt to silence the Word of God has brought people who were bold enough to stand and to risk their life so that it would not be eliminated from the face of this earth. God's Word stands. But notice what He calls, the prophet calls on us to do. He says, O Zion that bringest good tidings, O Jerusalem that bringest good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength, lift it up, be not afraid, say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. What is the message, folks? The message is there is a God. Behold your God. And folks, God is looking for people today who will be like, the, 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 like Isaiah the prophet is saying here, to be bold in their witness. People that aren't afraid. It says don't be afraid. It says, it says do it with strength. In other words, be bold. Don't fear man and declare, behold your God. And listen, folks, we have to be careful in the day and age in which we live that we don't fall into some, some attitude or mentality that we are not proud of our God, that we are not proud that we're Christians, that we try to hide it and operate in some stealth mode. That is not what we're called to do. We are called to declare boldly, Behold your God. That's what we are supposed to do. This was a message of declaration. Behold your God. It says, Behold, the Lord will come with strong hand, and His arms shall rule for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His work before Him. He says, behold your God. The word God here is, is Elohim, used, used some 2,300 times in the Scripture referring to God. And the first use of it is, guess where? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. The first use of the word. 23 plus, 23 plus 100 times in our Scripture, the use of the word God. Elohim. The root meaning strong, a deity of great power. And so the message of declaration is here. We are supposed to be bold in delivering it. But what is the message we are to declare? Well, the message gives us a picture of a God that is both awesome in power and caring in spirit. Now, we would often say those two things that don't go together. I mean, awesome in power and caring in spirit. But read verses 10 and 11 and see if that's not exactly what you see. Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and his arms shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. 
He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. Wow. Two totally different pictures of the God that we serve. A God that comes with strong arm, power, might, and a God that takes the weak and holds them against his bosom and protects them and cares for them. Isaiah said, this is the God you're declared to declare. This is the God you should be literally shouting from the mountaintops. We, we're going to end tonight's, tonight's Hang of the Green service with go tell it on the mountain. That's exactly what this passage is telling us. Declare it from the mountaintops that this is our God. Behold your God. That's what we're to be declaring. It's a message of declaration. Gives us a picture that God is both awesome and caring. Showing His great power and His tender loving care. You know, folks, I, I am always, just always moved when I think about the fact that Jesus Christ came not as the Jews expected their king to come because they were looking for somebody who was going to overthrow Rome, right? We all know that. That's what they wanted in a king. And so when their Messiah came and was put in a stable in a manger, that wasn't the king they were looking for. And he didn't come the way that kings come. He didn't come with great announcement and great all this stuff, grand stuff that normally happens when a king arrives. That's not how he came the first time. But folks, it is how he's coming the second time. And you can turn over to Revelation and probably one of the most powerful pieces of Scripture in all the Bible in Revelation chapter 19. And starting in verse 11, it says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were, written, uh, were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him with, upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's the powerful God that's going to be coming back one day. That's who Isaiah is speaking about here when he says the Lord is coming with strong arm. He's powerful. He's not coming this time as the babe in a manger. He's coming as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is the God that we worship and serve. This is the God that is coming. We'll contrast that God with John chapter 10. Go to John chapter 10 just for a moment. John chapter 10 and starting in verse 10. It says this. It says, The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is an hireling and not the shepherd, whose own sh the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming and leaveth the sheep and fleeth, and the wolf, wolf catcheth them and scattereth the sheep. 
The hireling fleeth because he is a hireling and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and I am known of mine. Wow. What a powerful contrast that Isaiah gives us here. The Lord mighty in power and the Lord the shepherd caring for the sheep. That's the message that is supposed to be declared, folks. And then Isaiah takes the entire rest of the chapter to demonstrate who God is. Who God is. Wow, are we possibly out of time already? We're going to have to hold that thought. Because all the rest of this chapter, folks, is a view into this God. And it's not just the picture of a babe in a manger, folks. I guarantee you it's not that. It's something much bigger, much more powerful. In it, we're going to find a pronouncement of power. We're going to find a pronouncement of wisdom, a pronouncement of greatness, a pronouncement of incomparableness, a pronouncement about knowledge, and a pronouncement of God's transcendence. And that's what we have to look forward to two Sundays from now as we continue on this thought from Isaiah. Behold your God. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed as we come to the end of the message. Christmas is a great time of year, and I, and I know we all love Christmas, and, and we love to sing about the babe in the manger and, and the songs of Christmas and all the things that surround that whole scene. And it's a beautiful scene. I'm glad the scriptures include it for us. And I'm glad we can rejoice at those things. But folks, we have to remember and remind ourselves constantly that the babe in the manger is the Messiah of the world. He is not some little teeny baby in a manger. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father today, making intercession for you and for me. And when he breaks the clouds open someday and returns, he is going to come in all of his power and all of his might. And he's going to right the wrongs in this world. How is it that after 39 chapters of declaring judgment, Isaiah can say, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. It's because there's more to the story, folks. There's an end coming one day when everything that is wrong will be made right. When every knee on this earth, I'm talking the knee of the atheist, I'm talking the knee of the person that has shook their face in the hand in the face of God and said, I don't care if there's a God, I don't believe there's a God. Every one of those knees is going to bow before that God and declare what? That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's what's coming, folks. And the Christmas story is just the beginning. The babe in the manger is just the starting point of Jesus' work here on this earth. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. Let's stand with our heads bowed and eyes closed. I'm going to ask Judy to begin to play. Maybe the